I'm Sangeeta Pillai and this is the Masala Podcast, where we talk about all those things that we're not supposed to talk about as South Asian women. Sex, sexuality, periods, menopause, mental health, nipple hair, shame and many more taboos. It's time we heard the voices of real South Asian women, not just those we see in Bollywood or in mainstream Western media. It's time we had a real voice, a loud and proud and strong voice. I've invited some incredible women to sit at my kitchen table, drink chai and put the world to rights. In this episode, I'm talking to Tina Misri, who calls herself the brown psychologist. Tina is a clinical psychologist and director of Therapy Sense. She specialises in mental health issues within the South Asian community. Tina is particularly interested in working with trauma, including intergenerational trauma. She explores mental health issues around race, ethnicity and culture. Could we start by you telling me a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up? What took you in your life to this journey? within the mental health space? I was born and bred in Leicester. And Leicester, as people might know or may not know, is a very Indian populated <laughs> city. Um, I, I think heard. it I think it's it's got the official status of ethnic minority majority, which is great. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's great. And yeah, I grew up in Leicester, very kind of Indian Gujarati centered um, city. And I loved it. I loved it because, you know, I was pretty much felt like, you know, we were talking about before about feeling like you belong. You were one of many other people that look like you, that ate the same foods as you, and so forth. And at the same time, you kind of feel like you're in a bubble as well. So that was my world, you know, being, being Indian, Gujarati, brown, whatever. And then, how I got into kind of mental health was that sense of realizing there was something that doctors, medicine didn't really quite cover. And I remember growing up, my parents telling me, oh, you must become a doctor. And I was like, okay, I'll become a doctor then. That's what you want, you know, (laughs) even though I had these radical ideas of being a fashion designer. (laughs) And then I remember dad, my dad specifically saying, there's no money in fashion design. Why do you want to do that? Um, and then I was like, okay, I'll be a nurse. So I was naturally already drawn to some sort of caring, healing profession from a really young age. And then how the world of mental health and psychology opened up was just by chance. Crazy. It was just by chance in that I remember kind of watching TV on a Saturday morning. And the, at that time, there was um, these open university lectures that they yeah. aired on BBC Two or something. I just flicked the channel. And I watched this lecture about depression. I was, my mind was just totally just frazzled by this idea that there's this thing that people feel and it changes the way they think and the way that they behave. And it's not actually a physical disease. It's something that's happening in their mind or their brain. And that was it. That's when I kind of, something started to just form in my mind that you can, you can kind of be affected by something and 
people can't see it. It's not like a broken leg or, you know, a normal kind of physical ailment. So that's where it started. And I started to just like, you know, ask people about kind of like, what, what's mental health? And people couldn't really give me some great answers. And then I remember when, um, it was time to pick what courses to do at A level. And this word, everyone was studying psychology. <laughs> it was the thing. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do psychology at A level. And I was like, what's psych- what is this psychology thing? I didn't know what it was. Nobody talked about it. And then I did a bit of reading on what psychology was and, um, what was it about? And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is what it is. You know, and it clicked. I thought, I'm doing this. I don't care. I'm going to study psychology. And I went to do psychology A level. And that love affair started from that point onwards. Why I was so attracted to it is because it gave me a lot of answers or started to give me some answers as to how I was feeling and also recognizing things that were happening within my family. So, you know, they would talk about things like, um, you know, psychology talks about, especially the module around mental, mental health, because psychology is so broad. Um, and when, when we did the module on, they called it abnormal psychology about schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, all of those things. I was like, Oh my gosh, I can kind of see these things happening in people that I knew, but nobody talked about, nobody gave it a label. They just said, you know, that that's how they were or somebody had done black magic on them or you know they had I remember the words breakdown specifically Mm -hmm. being used and I just didn't quite understand what does that even mean like what does breakdown mean Mm -hmm. so for me psychology was this bridge into making sense of um kind of experiences within my family that I had witnessed and it gave me a language this whole new language that just didn't absolutely um and from that point on, I knew that that's kind of why I wanted to do what I wanted to do. Yeah. Just touching on what you just said about within South Asian culture, if somebody has one of these problems and there's the sense of, oh, that's just how they are. We never name anything. We never say, oh, so-and-so is suffering from such and such a thing. And I feel like it's so ingrained within our culture have you seen this in, in, cause this is what you specialize in South Asian culture, kind of problems within the culture, within the kind of mental health space. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I think that there is a, I think what's happening is that we have just almost accepted that these behaviors or experiences there are no words for them. And what what happens is when we don't understand something, we just probably turn a blind eye to it. We kind of sweep it under the carpet. Or if we can't, if we can't solve it, we haven't got if we haven't got a a pill for it or a remedy. Yeah. An Ayurvedic remedy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, then we, we, we can't, healthy, yeah, healthy for mental it. health. Absolutely. <laughs> It's Holdi's Holdi's life, isn't it? It solves everything. But this is what I'm saying. If people haven't got a kind of solution to it, then we we get stuck. And this is why, for me, it's like I don't don't blame, you know, our culture for how it is. It's just 
that's how it is. And I also, again, you know, we can talk about this more is this struggle with this idea of the medicalization of mental health as well. So, uh, you know, medicalization is, it's a Western concept, isn't it? So I'm constantly aware that I'm treading in really tricky, murky waters where I'm not saying that we need to apply Western ideas of mental health to South Asian culture and South Asian issues. What I'm saying is what we need to be thinking about is how do we appreciate how South Asian cultures make sense of their mind and their spirit and the body and all of that, whilst at the same time thinking about what we know in Western science and somehow amalgamate the two and it's not easier said than done um it is tricky but by just starting a conversation starting to say oh i wonder what's happening here and just being curious as well um is is it better than just pretending it's not there in the first place and trying to give people a platform or a voice where they can start to say yeah you know actually there was this one time in my life when I felt X, Y, Z. That's okay, you know, rather than say, pretending that, shunning it and saying it didn't happen. So, yes, I think that, you know, it's something we need to address. And I think that it's no one's fault. It's not about blaming people. Yeah. You know, it is what it is. Having a South Asian therapist, how does that, can you talk to me about what difference that makes? I found that personally, it would make a lot of difference if the therapist I was speaking to understood where I come from. So I wondered how your experience a, as a South Asian woman, a South Asian therapist, would then bring very positive changes to somebody you were dealing with. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, this is this is something that I I think about a lot because there's so many different levels. So. On the basic level, I think there's something around representation that when you see somebody who is of the same race or color or gender as you, this this natural kind of, oh, okay, they're like me or they may have had some sort of experiences similar to me. And that creates that bridge, doesn't it? That natural bridge of they might just get it as opposed to, having somebody who's totally different that might not get it. So I think that there may be some positives around, I'll be able to talk to him or her about my experiences. And I've had many clients say to me, I've searched for a Asian therapist and I fought for you or, you know, I really wanted to make sure that I got you because specifically you're Asian. And that's really humbling, isn't it? It's really <laughs> yeah. nice that people kind of feel that way. Um, so I can see its benefits. Uh, and at the same breath, I remember when we were training, so when I was training to be a clinical psychologist and when we talked about diversity and, you know, when you you start to have those conversations, one of the things that they talk about is actually we can help everyone and anyone in to some respect and that our approach should be that we remain curious and never have kind of these um, assumptions, which I totally agree with because 
as a brown person sat in front of another brown person, I could get it totally wrong, right? Mm. I could, because mm. I could say, well, oh, right, you know, Sangeeta must have had a really similar experience to her upbringing as I did. Mm. And that could be totally yeah. untrue. So we must always remember to never assume. But that said, that doesn't mean that that's a, a sticking point for somebody who doesn't want to have to explain it all or somebody to have that really deeper level of connection of empathy. And I think that's probably what you're talking about is that deeper level of, I, f I really feel that from a, a perspe personal perspective. And I think that's what bridges good therapists with their clients you know and what we know about therapy is that that is the biggest indicator of positive outcomes if you connect with your therapist and your therapist connects with you it doesn't matter what type of therapy they're using that that relationship is what is going to help you heal totally agree mm. totally agree. so there's there's different levels there. And then the top level, which is one that I've been thinking about a lot is, and I've touched on just before, is this idea of the therapies that we are trained in are Eurocentric. They have been modeled and tested and trialed on white British, well, white, not even British, I'd say white-centric populations particularly students, because that's where most of the studies are done. So what are we saying? We're saying that it works for them, but are we saying that these types of models of therapy work for somebody like me who isn't white <laughs> or somebody like you who isn't white, yeah. you know? Yeah. So this is something that I, again, keep in my mind mm. that, yes, therapy is great, but we've got to be a bit more flexible in the way that we approach it that actually one size doesn't fit all we cannot be you know can't, can't make assumptions and that we really just need to keep an open mind about pretty much everything but at the same time I think representation does matter because what what ultimately I feel that I'm saying by kind of sticking my neck out and saying I'm a brown therapist is that you know for other women of color you can do this job too, and that you can talk to me. And I think that that's powerful in itself. And the other side of this is that, you know, a lot of research talks about how confidentiality can get in the way. So what I mean by that is that somebody who has come from um, a community where they don't feel safe enough to talk about something to their own, you know, kind of person of in, in their community. And if they see another brown therapist or something like that, they're going to feel like, well, if they're part of that community, are they going to break confidentiality? And this is not only just to therapy. I think that even like GPs experience this same feeling of, well, I'm not going to talk to that, you know, Pakistani or uh, Indian GP because I'm afraid that they might go and tell my auntie, uncle, blah, blah, blah. So I think that's what also gets in the way. But I need to, you know, kind of iterate and reiterate that we are bound by confidentiality as a, pro a professional practice, that we don't break that and we only do it if the person is at risk and we would only share that information to the right parties anyway. So 
I think there is a level of trust that obviously needs to be built, but it takes time. And I get that. Um, can we talk a little bit about um, mental health in relation to being female in South Asian? I know a lot of your patients are female. Um, do you see any patterns in the problems that they bring to you as a therapist? For example, it could be the expectations and the taboos that they face, how that affects their mental health, any particulars that you want to talk about? I think I think what tends to happen for South Asian women is they come with obviously a variety of experiences. Of yeah, of course. But the key sort of areas that we touch on is patriarchy (laughs) that old that that old beast yes and also this idea of you know their identity and who they should be and who they want to be and you know we were talking about this and I think this whole feeling of I guess it's, it's this feeling of wanting to say and talk break chains you know all of that idea but the conflict between what we should be based on what our culture tells us and what we should be based on what this dominant English Western ideology is telling us. So that real tension, this conflict that we we talk about. And there was um, some research done back in, oh, we're talking early 90s, I think it was 95, I think, where um, a psychologist researched how the second generation of immigrants that came to the this country south asian um immigrants and how they experienced high levels of conflict um especially within girls you know wow. young women and how there was this astoundingly high rate of suicide and self-harm um within this population because they just the, you know these young women these girls did not know how to cope with this dual um you know dual cultures absolutely you know at home they have to speak their mother tongue they have to not talk back to their elders the rest of it and then they go into the the world of school where they are expected to put their hand up yeah ask questions yeah be forthright yeah and then they come back home and switch and, you know, it's, it, that's tricky. That is tricky. And that still exists. I mean, oh, yeah. I meet a lot of women in my workshops who tell me very similar things. Mm. So at home, you have a certain life. Mm. You're kind of like the good Indian daughter. Yep. Uh, you don't really talk about your boyfriends or sex or yeah. all of that. And outside, you put on this kind of other garb, this other persona almost of yeah. being you're more British there and yeah. you're more Asian at home and they're yeah. quite different. They are. And that creates conflict, doesn't it? Of course it, it does, yeah, because you almost get, you get lost in yes. actually who are you? Who am I? <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast yesterday and the guest on that podcast said something very interesting. She said, we all have feelings and feelings are an indicator of what is actually going on in yes, your mind. Yes. But because as a society, we've been told to kind of repress some feelings. They're not appropriate. Yes. So we don't have the means to deal with them. Yeah. So feeling extremely sad when something sad happens is a natural human response. Yep. And you're supposed to feel that. Mm. But because we don't allow room for it, then that becomes, you suppress it. And then that comes out in some other form. Absolutely. Yeah. So what, what I often say in, you know, when I'm speaking to clients is you wouldn't ignore the signals on your dashboard of your car. Now your emotions are the signals on the dashboard of your car. They're 
You might have amber ones. You might have red ones. Yeah. Yep. So when your fuel light goes, yeah. you're going to do something about it. You're going to fuel it, right? <laughs> you're not going to sit there and say, oh, let me just pretend it's not happening yeah. and it's going to go away. Your car's going to stop. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and this is what I say to people. Don't ignore your feelings. Your feelings are there as indicators that something is happening or you are experiencing something. And often what we, what we, what we experience is that it's neither bad or neither good. And we've somehow, for some odd reason, got this idea that there's negative feelings and positive feelings. I struggle with that because I just think, well, if you're feeling sad, you're feeling sad. And if you're feeling happy, yes. you're feeling happy. That's okay. Yes. You know, that we shouldn't feel sad and we shouldn't feel this angry. And again, a lot of my thinking around this stems from childhood that big emotions, as I like to use the, the phrase, come up in us and we're supposed to feel them. What we need to teach our children is that there are, yes, there are feelings of anger, there are feelings of sadness and they're okay. But what we have experienced sadly is that we're supposed to shut down those feelings. You must not be angry. You must not be sad. You know, that I remember the classic line of stop crying, <laughs> you know, stop crying. Yeah but I feel sad. I wish I could have said that, but I feel sad, you know, and you, you aren't allowed to cry. Absolutely. Or if you feel rage, which all children do, adults do too, that if you feel that and you start to kind of, you know, experience that, that's quickly shut down or that it's not appropriate, especially for a girl, especially to show feelings of rage. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't know about your experience, but in my kind of childhood, being angry was Ooh, never okay. No. Nope. Everything was quiet. You smiled even if you were angry. Yes. And you got on and you did as yes. you were told. Yes. So there was never any a landscape to allow feelings like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure that's not very good for you to no. grow up always smiling and saying yes no. and being happy with everything. And like you said, so what tends to happen is that when I do see women, and I think this goes kind of across your race and, and, yeah. and culture, mm. is that women will come and they will feel either emotions that are pronounced anxiety or depression, those types of feelings. But actually, when we start to explore what's underneath that, it's a heck of a lot of anger. Yes. And it's once they start to name that anger, yes. something shifts in them. Absolutely. And I find that is really powerful. And then it's almost the opposite for men, that men will you know, kind of come into the, the therapy room and they'll be angry and angry and drrr, drrr, drrr. but actually it's deep sadness, loss, regret. This is fascinating. Yeah, this is it so is true. so powerful. And once they start to recognize, actually, this is what it is. I wasn't allowed to show my feelings of anger or my sadness because my stereotypes have told me I wasn't allowed to. You know, it just shifts everything. And I think that we are doing our all of ourselves a disservice i think it's really something we should be talking about more and more and more talking to tina made me think of my own anxiety and panic attacks it happened about a year two years ago I've not spoken about it before. I just wrote about it then. 
and here's what I wrote. I'm in bed today. I was at work yesterday, but today I'm in bed. I think I'm going to be in bed for a long, long time. Days, months, years even. The thought of the effort involved in getting my body out of bed feels superhuman. I was a fully functioning member of the London cosmopolitan scene, eating my weekend avocado on toast, sipping yet another glass of Prosecco at a bar. Today the world feels like it's crushing me. I feel like I can no longer breathe. You can't run from your life, all your life. Anxiety and PTSD were waiting for me, and this time they got me. They arrive in the midst of important work meetings about falling email revenues, which means I have to leave the office and pound the grey pavements for a few hours until I exhaust those stress hormones. They arrive just after a beautiful dinner out, when my body goes into overdrive, my stomach threatening to throw out whatever it's consumed. When I watch a TV show with even a remote hint of danger, the palpitations start. The only thing I can watch are David Attenborough shows with cute animals and slowly swimming fish. I'm so alarmed sometimes with the breathlessness and the pain in my chest that I call 111. They tell me to go to the nearest hospital immediately. Of course, it turns out to be nothing to worry about. But can you imagine feeling like you're about to die and to not worry? So here I am, lying in bed, feeling like I'll never get up again. That was from a time in my life when anxiety ruled, and PTSD, and panic attacks. When it felt like I could never breathe again, let alone live and thrive and dance and do all these wonderful things that make life special. I'm a lot better now, but I still struggle sometimes. I just have to say to myself, it's okay to not be okay all the time. With trauma and the body, mm. do you find that patients who come to you have, particularly women, carry any sort of intergenerational trauma? Because so many experiences are passed down, aren't they? Mm. Particularly within culture. So if women are taught that this is the way you are and this is not the way you are not. Mm. And your mum said the same thing, and yeah. your grandmum, and so on. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen anything like that? Yeah, so this is something that I'm really interested in. And what, what I'm finding in the literature is this idea that trauma can be passed down. Because what trauma does is it shapes the way you view the world. So let's say, for example, you know, my great-grandmother had a really traumatic experience with, oh, I don't know, I'm just trying to think of something on the top of my head, um, where she fell down or fell down somewhere and really hurt herself or she was lost or something. That's going to shape then how she is, you know, if she was a child at that time, she was parented, you know, all right, we must really look after her now and keep her in the house and make sure she doesn't get lost again, blah, blah, blah. And then that's going to shape the way then she views the world. The world is unsafe or, you know, all of that. She then is going to parent her daughter differently, who is then going to parent her daughter differently. So it's, it's that, it's passing that message down, not only on a kind of, kind of behavioral level, but what the research is also telling us is on a biological level, the way that people are, so traumatized individuals will have specific markers. So like the uptake of cortisol, for example you know, mothers who have babies in their wombs will have higher markers of cortisol 
if the mothers have been traumatized. So the babies will actually be more hypersensitive to trauma without even having ex been exposed to a trauma themselves. So on an epigenetic level. So we are talking about the way that trauma is passed through the DNA. So this is kind of like mind-blowing stuff that research that is happening out there. But if we start to acknowledge that actually the way you feel right now, today, in this moment, I often say to people, it's not your fault. Once we start this conversation around, okay, so tell me where are you from? What are you know? What your parents and did it? Tell me your story. And that's what I have always been passionate about is hearing people's stories. Once we start to hear people's stories, we start to kind of get the pieces of the jigsaw. And we start to put it together, and we we just gently wonder, wonder what it was like for for mum who was a refugee. You know, and she came to this country. What were the things she may have seen when she was back home in Africa? You know, what was it like for her growing up? And what about for, you know, your great grandma? What was it like? What was it like then? Do you remember any stories that you may have been told? Blah, 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 blah. And we start to kind of just connect gently. And then we talk about this idea of passing down trauma and how it actually shapes the way we are today. And I think culture has a lot to do with that, you know, that, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of this idea of you must not wash your hair on a Wednesday <laughs> because yeah. your brother will have bad luck for the yeah. rest of his life. Yes. I remember being hearing that as a child yeah. and I was thinking, how has washing my hair got to do with anything that happens to my brother? And then when something bad does happen, see, you, you must not, yeah. <laughs> you know. So all these sorts of ideas, these um superstitions or whatever you want to call them they come from somewhere and they were practical for whatever it was specific to that time but yet we are still filtered down these ideas not to through. wash your hair and we carry them through not knowing really why yeah but they are these superstitions i think were the the way that these communities and cultures coped they didn't know any other way and because we are so especially south asian communities are so externally influenced so they rely heavily on this idea that their locus locus of control is external so anything that happens beyond them it happens to them as opposed to them having an internal sense of control that changes the the kind of conversation yes. doesn't it whereas in western kind of uh, ideas or western communities it's all about me i I am the focus yes. of control. I can control stuff. And I'm not saying either or is better, but it's just about knowing, you know, currently in your situation, how how much of this control do you feel is yours? And again, this relates to a lot of women that come and see me and talk about this idea. Actually, it's the system around me or I have no control because I can't voice up. And if I voice up, then I'll be disowned and yes. so and so forth. Yes. So I feel that what tends to happen with women, women of South, A South Asian culture is that they feel that it is a choice that it's they have this to make or that. that. Yeah. And that I feel is really sad because it shouldn't have to be this way, should it really? No. It shouldn't be a choice. It should just be that we all figure this out, this mess together. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's a collective issue, absolutely. isn't it? And a systemic issue and a cultural issue. And it, 
touches on politics and colonialism and all of that, but it's just so much for us to think about. Absolutely. So we just then dissociate and shut off. Because that's easier yeah. than exploring these really complicated. Absolutely. I think one of the things we were talking about earlier was belonging mm. and how that affects personally for me. I grew up in a very traditional Indian family mm. and they wanted me to be a certain way. And I had to kind of reject all of that to become this person. Yeah. But I am part of that. Of course. So now if I live this kind of what I call an individualistic life, mm. there is a part of me that still craves that belonging. Yeah. But surely, like you were t saying about your other women patients, that it shouldn't be at this or that. Yeah. But unfortunately, it feels like you choose this and that's your lot or you choose that and that's your lot. Yeah. And I think within the community, we do struggle with this. Yes. Yeah. You have to be all or nothing. Yes. Exactly. Can't be. You're all in a your traditional South Asian woman yeah. wearing a sari doing a thing. Yeah. Or you're the other extreme, the kind of quote-unquote westernized lifestyle. Yeah. But I surely... think that is changing now. I'm really getting a strong sense of, you know, we are forming an identity, especially with, you know, we're talking now third, fourth generation, particularly in this country and in countries like Canada and so forth, where that, you know, young women are questioning it and they are talking about feminism and, you know, there's so much, isn't it? Just by doing this is, yes. is questioning it and it's yes, brilliant, absolutely. you know. So we're not no longer kind of just pretending that this this stuff ha happens to us and we're frustrated, but we're actually doing something, we're about, doing it. something about it. And I think that this is hopefully going to be a tide of change because, you know, like I've said to you, uh, what I want for my daughters is for not to have those struggles that I had. And I want to educate them and, and empower them to be who they ever they want to be. It doesn't matter, you know, but I am very much aware that the pressures of the older generations will continue to kind of impact us. It's just going to take time. Yeah. I think that the magic would be if we were able to hang on to those bits of culture that are good for us mm. um, and then get rid of some of the things that aren't so good yeah. for us. And then we pick could a mix. Be, pick a mix <laughs> yeah. of South Asian culture. Yeah. And and the same with our kind of British part of our yeah. ourselves, you know, pick what we like or of what course. is good for us. And somehow that they work together and it doesn't feel like this disconnect. Yes. Too. Yeah. I think that would be That would be healthier. the ideal. Yeah. And I think that, you know, people are starting to do that. They're starting to pick the bits they like and not, kind of you know not kind of entertain the ideas that don't quite fit with what they believe in and everyone's different so there's no right or wrong yeah. way of doing it you know if you want to become a doctor great that's that's brilliant but that's if you want to be a doctor <laughs> if you want to be an artist great go and be an artist who comes home and makes the roti you know <laughs> it doesn't matter it's the most important thing is that you know yourself and have had that time to figure your stuff out because we were talking about this before this we go through life so blindly not knowing who we are and we don't pay enough attention to what is it you really really want quoting the Spice Girls who are you <laughs> <laughs> quoting the Spice Girls always always plays for Spice yeah. Girls yeah <laughs> so I think yeah the, the tide of change is happening for brown women 
I think so. It's about time. I think it's about time. We're yeah. sitting here talking about this, which in itself is huge. Yeah. Do you have any advice on what, if someone was facing something that felt difficult, mm. what do they do? Anything practical that you could say, think about it like this or talk to so-and-so? Okay. Yeah. So I think that when you don't feel yourself, recognize that and accept that, that you are not feeling yourself. Instead of denying it. Yes. Which is what a lot of us, I yeah. do that a lot. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. I'll be fine. Nothing wrong with me. Yeah. And it's not even wrong. It's, it's about knowing that this is a part of who you are and it becomes activated because of something that has happened either in the past or, you know, in the present um, and explore it. Don't be afraid to go into yourself and figure out why, why is it that every time such and such happens that, you know, it makes my blood boil or that such and such happens and I feel really rubbish about myself. What is that? What just, just, you know, be, be curious. And sometimes we can do that in a space where we've got some good friends and, you know, we can have that conversation. Sometimes we can't do that with friends because it's sometimes a bit too deep. If you can, go to therapy. If you can't, that's okay. Journaling, you know, that's a good thing to do. Writing down. If you're expressive, you know, this is why I love the creative arts because you get to express yourself in a way that isn't really always about you if that makes sense it's it's a it's a medium isn't it you know so figure out how you express yourself are you I don't know into music can you write lyrics to express yourself and read reading's always a great thing isn't it because we learn from hearing from other, other people's people. stories you know you know you name it there's so many different forms of of media out there that will hopefully resonate with you. And the more that, you know, South Asian people start to talk about this, the more people we will start to influence and hopefully help. You know, social media, as much as it has, you know, you have issues with it because of the addictiveness of it. Um, it's so, it's full of amazing people that share amazing things. So don't be afraid to use that too. And voice and collaborate and be part of something because I think like we were saying before you can never stop learning and you can never stop learning about yourself absolutely and also being honest and open as well with yourself and with other people I've only just started to talk about my own mental health kind of issues I've had it for two or three years but it always felt like it was something hidden that it was this this kind of ugly part of me that I couldn't share with people I would always put on this front and go talk to people. And when I felt really low, I would just stay in. But for the first time in my life, I'm saying to people, I'm having a, an awful day. I'm crying today. And this is what I'm going to do today. So I can't come to this meeting or this drinks or whatever. And for me, it's been about accepting that that is okay as well. I can feel like that and I can say it and there's nothing, you know, that's normal. I think that's a big, big part of it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, one other thing I think you mentioned earlier, which I wanted to touch upon, was stories, the power of stories. I think we come from cultures where stories have existed for centuries. It's how we've learned, how we've passed on knowledge, how we've connected with one another. 
So maybe using the power of stories to, to A, talk to one another, to put our stories out there in whatever creative medium, like you were saying earlier. And stories are hugely powerful, cathartic. When I think women sit across the table like we are and share stories, I think that forms a connection and it's an outlet and a release as well. So using that yeah. perhaps is a yes. really good way. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, when you listen to a story, you connect with different... So stories are so powerful, aren't they? Because you have these kind of archetype characters. And actually, when we start to look kind of inwards, we naturally have these archetype characters in ourselves we have the criticizer we class as the kind of you know the baddie and we have the vulnerable aspect of ourselves and we might have the warrior and all these different you know parts of us actually resonate with this story because it is telling telling a story or telling a narrative about the human experience and how actually complex it is and how you know how beautiful and rich and raw it is at the same time and that there is no one size fits all and that there is no wrong or right there just is a way and a multiple way so stories are super powerful because I think you know I'm just thinking about stories and I remember my most um fondest memory of primary schools when I actually learned about Rama and Sita and that was done on that traditional puppet show, you know, with the shadow puppets. And that still sticks into my mind because I think that was, that t story was taught to me in such a way that will never leave me because it stayed with me, you know. And I think that we, ha we have to use the creative arts to talk about our human experiences. And that's, that's what it's designed for, isn't it? Absolutely. No one's going to be sitting reading academic <laughs> journals because we can't connect to it. We cannot, cannot connect to statistics and and all of that. So we need to be communicating in a way that feels right. We all love reading books. We all love watching movies. We love listening to Ed Sheeran talk about his stories, you know, and that, that's why his music is so good because he is a storyteller, isn't he? They're the best singer-songwriters. And I think that if... People of color or, you know, Asian, South Asian artists, creatives come out and share their stories. It's going to resonate with so many and will help thousands. I'm Sangeeta Belai. Thank you for listening to the Masala Podcast. Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras. What's that all about? Soul Sutras is a network for South Asian women. A safe space to tell our stories. A place to reclaim our bodies. To tackle taboos within our culture. To be exactly who we want to be. Get in touch and tell me your stories about your taboos. Check out my website, soulsutras.co.uk or get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Soul Sutras. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and leave me a nice review. It really helps.
Thank you to all my bad babies for listening to the first series of Masala Podcast. I've had some incredible guests over the last nine weeks, from burlesque dancers to best-selling authors and even a drag queen. We've talked taboos, we've discussed periods and erotic novels and mental health. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Masala Podcast. We're taking a break right now, but we'll be back again soon in the new year for a spicy series two. Thank <laughs> you.